I go to church and I'm at the altar rail and that's the realest thing that happens to me that week. Other things may happen. People I love may die. I may right. I may get promoted or lose my job or publish some new poems. Okay, that's neat. But it's sort of all like etc etc until I get to the altar rail again, which is the next realest thing that's ever happened. Misha Willett is a poet, scholar of 19th century British literature, and assistant professor of English and writing at Seattle Pacific University. We're talking today about a thoughtful, insightful, and candid article he recently published in Fair Forward, an online ecumenical journal of Christian thought. In this article, titled I Am a Churchgoer, Misha explains why he continues to attend weekly religious services even during an era when so many are leaving institutional religion. Some of his reasons are familiar, and a few may surprise you. I'm Matthew Wickman of BYU's Faith and Imagination Institute. Misha Willett, it's great to see you. Thanks for coming on here to talk to me. Thanks for having me. Okay, so you're a poet, and I'd love to have you on the podcast when you talk about your poetry. Uh, but today we're talking about an article you recently published in the journal, uh, online journal, Fair Forward. It's an article titled, I Am a Churchgoer. Now, when I first saw this essay, even before I got very far into it, and this could be because I know you're a poet and I'm an English teacher, okay? I was thinking about the English poet Philip Larkin's 1950s era poem, Church Going. And for those who don't know it, who are listening to this podcast, um, it's a famous poem uh, in which the poetic speaker enters a church from a bike ride and begins reflecting on the strangeness of religion and how in some future day, uh, people will come across old churches, maybe old, you know, in ruins at that point, and will have no idea why people ever attended these buildings, or what went on in there, or why they were religious, what it's all about. This poem of Larkin's is one of the definitive poems giving expression to modern secularism. So I've got to ask you, as you wrote this piece titled, I Am a Churchgoer, did you have Larkin's poem in mind at all as you were writing? And if, if not, I mean, what was the impetus for the article? Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, it's strange, actually. I was—I spent the entire summer reading Philip Larkin. Uh, just now, when I was thinking of this uh, of this piece, um, I led a study abroad group doing on C.S. Lewis business. So we did a week in Oxford, a week in Cambridge, a week in London, just just this last summer. And I didn't bring a lot of books, but God bless the English. I was in a pub, and they just had a copy of Philip Larkin's essays there for people to read who didn't bring anything. <laughs> I don't like to be on my phone too much. So there I am having my dinner and I just started reading and it was wonderful. So I asked if I could borrow it. So for the entire summer, I had I had that voice in my head. So I'm sure that's in the back of my mind. And I'm, I know that poem very well. I've, I've thought about it for years. So yeah, sure. But the actual answer is um, someone asked. Mm -hmm. Someone who knows that I was a writer just said, hey, you're, you're one of those churchgoers, right? Why do you do that? Really? Yeah, that's how the that's okay. It was on Twitter. Someone just knows that I, because I, I published some secular things and I, but m more and more these days, I'm writing about church and the life of faith. And someone who just knows that about me was like, why do you go to church? And I thought, why do I do this all the time? <laughs> so, I, I, so I tried to answer it. That's great. I love that. You know, I've got, I, once I got found on Twitter this, for something similar, there was a, uh, I was posting something about a class I taught on literature and spiritual experience. And we had a, a unit on divine silence. And I, 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 tweeted, I tweeted something about it, or X, or posted whatever it's called now, X, yeah, right. or whatever, whatever. <laughs> and uh, someone screenshotted it and emailed me and said, would you come on my radio program and talk about this thing? 
So oh, interesting. Yeah, anyway, so, yeah. I, so I've had your experience. I loved your yeah. article. I think it's such a, uh, a thoughtful uh, and inventive piece. And we'll get more into it here in a second. Let me ask you first this. You know, there's yeah. a concern across many Christian denominations these days about the rate at which people, especially those in Gen Z, but not only Gen Zers, right, are leaving religion. Yeah. It's becoming a kind of a rite of passage to leave it. You know, it's like, what faith mm -hmm. did you have that you left? Right? It's a part of a coming right. of age they do story. It publicly too. At very, it's very public. It's strange. You, you now you work at a religious university, Seattle Pacific uh, University, mm -hmm. um, and is this a concern that gets raised at your institution? Is it a concern raised by your own personal Anglican congregation, uh, or is it a concern you felt personally, or? Are these concerns all maybe overheated and uh, maybe not necessary? Yeah. Uh, that's, that's interesting. Uh, I mean, on, on the one hand, of course they're unnecessary uh, because the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent, right? He's doing what he will do with his church. He will raise up a generation of believers as they need to be raised up. And I think uh, right on the one my tendency is of course to panic about that and i'll say more about that in a second but i think the right answer to, to your question is uh we are forbidden to worry uh mm -hmm. and for very good reason um because because this story has already been written and we know who wins in the end it's hard for me to live that way right um but but that's what i think is the truth um but our church uh doesn't think about that very much, or we don't talk about it anyways, not least because we're young. I go to a church that's only been there for three years, maybe. The denomination is young. Um, the Anglican Church in North America is 11, maybe 12 years old now. Wow, yeah. And in that time, it's a thousand and two churches in the last decade. Wow. Uh, just in, in this country, which is an extraordinary act, uh, it seems to me, in the face of that data. Um, but the, the school is, is very much worried about it. In fact, I, I just heard uh, last year when we were talking about our enrollment numbers, um, and someone said, I said, hey, why don't, we, why don't we drum up some more of these, why don't we make stronger ties with the churches around us? And I was told point blank, there aren't enough Christians anymore. Like th there's not enough Christians to either, even come to this school that we could possibly recruit. So we have to do something different with our messaging or course offerings or whatever else because they're the numbers aren't there anymore. Wow. I've heard that before from other um, friends of mine at work at, say, religious seminaries, uh, for example, yeah. you know, that they've, they've had the same concern they've expressed. So that, whenever I hear it, though, it's such a sobering uh, It's shocking. I know. Yeah, it really is. It, it's funny how they pay attention to these things, though. I mean, they're looking at birth rates every year so that they can predict what their enrollment looks like 18 years from then. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, did, were enough babies born so that in two decades, you know, like there's people who watch these numbers rather closely. And the most alarming one is the drop in church attendance. Yeah, for sure. Your point, though, is a really good one about, about there really is no reason to worry ultimately, given that God is at work in yeah. the world, right? And God will do what God will right. do. And yeah, I think that that's a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a principle of faith that's all too easy to lose if all you're doing is looking around yeah. you and not looking up. Right, right, right. Why should I feel discouraged? Starts the old hymn, his eyes on the sparrow, right? That's right. He, if he's watching that, well, why do, we're watching the population numbers, okay, fine. But he was watching even the sparrows, even the hairs on your head, right? So I, I say that in answer 
to your question so that I can hear myself say it and, <laughs> and hope to believe it. <laughs> okay, good, good. Now you mentioned in the article reasons for church going that I imagine are, are widely held. Uh, some of them, you, you mentioned, I'm quoting you here, to meet other believers, to learn, to worship, to grow more deeply into the image of God we were created to bear, and so on. But then your article elaborates on three other reasons that are less immediately obvious, but I think really important. Um, before we, I'll get to those each one in a moment here. Before we get to them, I'm curious to know, if you'd written this article 10 years ago, uh, would you have given the same three <laughs> reasons, right? Or is your involvement <clears throat> in church kind of an, a, 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 a changing practice for you uh, that brings out different things at different stages of your life? Yeah, that's, that's a really great question. It certainly would have been different 10 years ago. Um, my, my church going has absolutely deepened recently. In that, for example, I'm part of a liturgical practice now, and I haven't been for any of the rest of my life, which means I have work to do. Hmm. Um, I'm not, I mean, I would, I would go and spectate and participate to the degree that I felt present on any given Sunday, right? But now I really feel like, oh, my family had better be occupying our pew, or who's going to say the creed as loudly as we do, or, okay. you know, who's going to actually make the gesture with my actual arms during the doxology like someone needs to be there doing that right um so the sense of responsibility that's changed in it but with that the sense of reward has changed too um it it really used to be i'd go to church on sundays because you're supposed to go to church on sundays and sometimes the message would be great or the music would be great or i'd see my friends and those are all really good reasons for going to church i actually believe but um but anymore it's it's i, I say it's something like this in the end of the article like it's the center of not just my religious life, my whole life. Yeah, I go to church, and I'm at the altar rail, and that's the realest thing that happens to me that week. Other things may happen. People I love may die. I may right. I may get promoted or lose my job or publish some new poems. Okay, that's neat, but it's sort of all like, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, until I get to the altar rail again, which is the next realest thing that's ever happened. Yeah, that's how it feels for me now. Anyways, when I, when I think about my life. It's yeah, 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 and then I'm at church. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Then the, and that's new. I never, I didn't feel that way three years ago. That's that's new. I I love that. You know, the, kind of the et cetera. Then the realest thing that happens, followed by more et cetera, followed by the realest thing that happens next. Right. Yeah. It's, that's that's right, great. Right. Um, so let's go into some of the reasons actually. Actually, do list. I love these. The first reason you mentioned that you go to church is to sing hymns. But it's not because you claim to be someone who simply loves singing, you know, and you never got an audience <laughs> on the street corner or something like that, or because the hymns <laughs> at church are always aesthetically beautiful. Instead, you offer other reasons. You say that hymns bind congregations not only to each other, um, which they do, but to the past. Uh, you say that hymns mm -hmm. give us permission to think and feel as the Spirit moves in us, uh, that hymns provide us with, with mm -hmm. black tutors and female thinkers, right, the, whose, whose words mm -hmm. and music we sing. Um, Hymns force us to confront things that may be difficult for us theologically. They help us to know, respond to the world, and so on and so forth. The, I love these reasons. Do you want to comment on one or two of these reasons that you list there for why it is that you go to church to sing hymns? Yeah. Um, I, 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 this is another thing that's also new to me, and that's why I'm, I'm sort of detailing it in this way, because I'm like a, a tourist of hymns. I didn't grow up singing them, um, and, and none of the churches I ever went to. And I went to Wheaton College. And when I got there, I heard my first hymns. I never met people who were alive still. I knew people used to do that. I never met people who were alive still who sang hymns. Um, and I found that, this has continued throughout my, my academic career, but whatever else was going on, we could always sing hymns together. 
And so when, when, when I work at Seattle Pacific University now and we were having some sort of infighting, right, and people didn't want to be in the same room together, but someone would start singing, you know, it is well with my soul. And literally sometimes they'd stand up during faculty meeting and just start singing that. We could all do it. <laughs> yeah. So it bound us. I mean, these are some of these people are, are Catholics and Mennonites and, you know, like Southern Baptists and mainline people who are quite liberal. And, you know, there's all sorts of range. But boy, when we get inside of one of those, we are one. We, that's, the, that's another hymn, isn't it? We are one in the spirit. We are one in the Lord. Right? And we, we can all sing that. And it, it wasn't true before we started singing it. But by the end of that, it is. We are one in the spirit. I mean, there's a sense in which, of course, we're one in the Lord, regardless of what's happening. But it didn't feel that way until, that, until someone offered that, that hymn. That's a that's a great point. You know, here at BYU, we sing also not all the time, but before certain kinds of meetings that we have that are large university mm-hmm. or college wide meetings, uh, and um, the voices sound amazing. I mean, we sing in my congregation, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. in my in my local neighborhood, but here sure. there are more voices and there are more really good singers. Once in a while, it's like, who the heck has that kind yeah, of bass right. voice? <laughs> Who's that baritone yeah. or that soprano? Yeah. Like, like that colleague can yeah. sing. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> You write something I, th- I loved in this section of your of your essay. You say, probably the reason I most like hymns is that b- they permit me to live inside of poetry. I love that. They they permit me to live inside of poetry. I'm talking to a lot of poets uh, in this season of the podcast. Can you explain what you mean by living inside poetry? Yeah, I, I guess most artistic encounters, you know, our role is that of a spectator. Right? And that's still a powerful thing to behold. My wife is a choreographer, so I'm every few weeks at the ballet. I see everything that they put on, right? Um, I fly around to various museums looking at artworks. That's very important for me. Um, you know, or if I go to most concerts, I'm always, I'm always buying a ticket and sitting down somewhere watching other people do the thing, whatever the thing is, right? But, but when, when I'm in church, now, I know some churches have a sort of setup where there's smoke machines and you're, you're still spectating more than you're participating. But ours is a very spare kind of instrumentation and, and not very um, ardent kind of leadership. Someone just sort of, you know, plinks the first few notes of the hymn and okay, away we go. Um, but we get to, I get to, I get to say those words as though they're mine. If that makes sense, even if they're 200 years old or, or if a slave wrote them. Right? This is someone whose life experience is very, very different than mine, but, but they're imbued by the same Holy Spirit that I'm imbued with. And that's the same Holy Spirit that is in the congregation as we sing it. And that makes it, I, none of the other stuff matters. None of our individuation matters, right? Like, I feel like I'm part of the, what is the, that's what the word genius means, yeah? yeah? The original impulse of the thing. It's it's not that I'm rehearsing something somebody else did necessarily. It's being recreated in my actual body, right? In my the air column that I draw breath from. That's where the poem is. And it's a gift of that. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit through that person to me and through me to the people next to me in the pews. Yeah, that's right. You know, actors sometimes talk about this. They say that, you know, when they, when they bring a character to life, and they bring it yeah, off yeah. the page and onto the stage or behind the camera, whatever it may be, that they were in front of the camera, I should say. They find themselves kind of like communing with this thing, you know, that, that wasn't alive till they yeah. gave it us kind of a life. But it's more powerful, I think, even still in the context what you're talking about, right? Because it, it's there's a whole congregation there kind of in unison with you, yeah, you know, what you're right. singing. And the, the Spirit's presence through it 
also has right. an effect of connecting us not just to each other, but to God and across time. It's, yeah, exactly. It's, right. it's, it's, it's multidimensional. It's really profound. That's exactly the word for it. Because otherwise, if it's just two-dimensional, even if I'm the performer, like let's say I'm, you know, when I, when I go on poetry readings, for example, I give reading tours and that, and I'm, I'm delivering something to the audience, the audience is receiving it. Yeah, okay. So sometimes I am in that role, and the poetry is alive in me in that way, but that's different than this multidimensional thing that we're talking about here that extends absolutely across time, but also space, right? Because the audience is actually gone for that. It's a gift that we're sort of trying to offer with whatever we have to hand, but also across the entire world. You know, I go to, I lived in Germany for a while. I taught at the University of Tübingen, and they would sing the same, before I learned German, they would sing the hymns that I knew. I was like, oh, because of the melody, this must be. And I would still be moved by it. I don't understand a single word, right? Except I kind of do, because it's transdimensional. Right. No, it's great. I love it. I love it. Um, and I love also, so you mentioned a second reason for going uh, to church. I, I'm, I'm going to quote you here, the second reason. The offering plate, or I go to church to remember. You make a great point in a section of the essay about holy places, about church as a holy place. Um, but you get there, by way, I thought of a really moving story about a small but substantive miracle. And at the time, you know, small but substantive, at the time it occurred, a deeply meaningful miracle. Can you tell us that story again? Can you re rehearse it here for our <laughs> listeners? Yeah, sure. Um, so I've been, I've been blessed with poverty for a good portion of my life <laughs> from, from the time I was young. Uh, and, you know, we were raised on food stamps and everything like that. And my, my mother was a teenager, so it sort of comes with the territory. Um, and at whatever combination of reasons, you know, all my humanities degree and all this, it's, I've, I haven't left it behind uh, as quickly as some people might have. Um, so the, the short of it is one time we were so low on money uh, that we were asked to some friend's house for a picnic. And this is part of the blessing of being poor, actually. When someone invites you over for dinner, it's like, oh, thank you, Jesus. Like, yeah. you want to see your friends, of course, but also, hey, there's another meal I don't have to buy. And okay. it feels, you feel it twice, right? It's a gift from them. It's a gift from God through them to you. Yeah. Um, but that happened, and, and we were like, yes, we get to go. And then they texted us, and we said, yes, we'll be there. And then they texted and said, could you pick up some paper plates? Because it's going to be a picnic. Uh, and I thought, oh, sure, no problem. So we go to the store. And my wife, who was always a bit more responsible about these things, says, uh, let's check our balance before we do. And I did, and we had $8, it turns out, in, in the account. And I thought, wow, that's great. We can get the plates, and we'll get some apples, too, and we'll be, like, sharing our bounty with these people. <laughs> and then she's like, no, no, wait, but we have a coffee day tomorrow with some out-of-town friends, so we have to save the $8 for that because we could buy two coffees with that. And I had to do this calculus real quick, like, oh, great, where, how am I going to? Am I going to pretend I forgot the plates and just go anyways? And we'll sort of eat out of the bag. Like, how do I save face in this sort of exchange? And and then, you know, I'm not sure. I, I say in the essay, I'm not sure I prayed right then. I'm sort of like, oh, you know, darn it. You know, I just thought, great. What am I going to do? And I turned around the corner, not a tenth of a mile from where the store is, which is actually right here near SPU. And there's a sealed package of paper plates leaning up against the bus stop just just right there and I, I saw at the corner of my eye and i thought well that's impossible i mean i didn't know what it was i was like wait what and i pulled over my wife didn't see it i just pulled the car over she goes what are you doing and i just got out of the, the car and walked across the street just laughing like no way no way no way <laughs> I looked over and, and 
and they're sealed. Like I didn't feel weird about taking them. And so I just, I couldn't believe it. And, and so because I passed that place now still, I think of, of that place as holy, like it's a bus stop, you know, it's, it's where the number one bus uh, sort of pulls over. But every time I've lived here 20 years, every time I drive by that bus stop, I'm like, there's, there's a memorial. There's, there's a reminder. This, there's a hymn here. I raise my Ebenezer. Right, come thou fount of every blessing. That's right. what an Ebenezer is, is a marker of a place of blessing. Hmm. And that's what, as, as I understand it, and that's what that is for me now. Like, no matter what I'm tempted to worry about, I know that, that God will take care of me even to that level. Right? I wasn't going to die without them. It wasn't even in sustenance. It was just my embarrassment that was saved. It was my ego that was saved in a way. But he even bothered to that degree, you know? Yeah. I love the story, uh, Misha. I love about I mean, I love various things about it. One thing I love about it is that it doesn't overstate what happened. It doesn't make the event bigger than it was. It yeah. wasn't I mean, there are stories that you hear, right, where this might have been a family story where one of your children was like fatally ill and is miraculously healed, right? This is not that sure, kind of sure. story. Um, <laughs> it's a story yeah. about 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 saving some face. It's a story about having some something to bring that you were asked to bring at a time of poverty and need. Yeah. You came across a simple bag of paper plates in an unusual time and place, you know, when you really needed them. But in its context, it's a story with really remarkable, even uncanny power, right? And it, yeah. and it does accentuate then the holiness of places where something about those places either reminds us of God or a place that, as far mm -hmm. as we can perceive it, God has touched this place for us in some way. And churches right. do precisely sure. that, right? And these buildings, yeah. these sanctuaries become places where we have been moved by God. They are holy on that ground. I, it's a really powerful yeah. story that you tell, I think. Yeah. Thank you for that. I've been trying to think about um, miracles in my life for the last couple of years. I wrote an essay last year for Mockingbird uh, about called Small Letters and Sparrows. I'm um, trying to think through various miracles in my life and some of them are really small and that's the point about the, the small letters and sparrows because they're really small right like the, every miracle doesn't have to be a, a, a clean bill of health from a cancer diagnosis right but, but and if we pay attention to them I don't know if they they happen more often or if we're or if this is a way of determining what it means to be blessed are the poor right if that's part of it like the, the poverty whether it's material poverty or poverty of spirit allows because it demands dependency it allows you to see these things more for what they are that's great right? like if you have enough money well then you have a credit card well then buy the plates nothing and you drive oh somebody littered at the bus stop right it's, right it's nothing to you unless you have that need and that that's what touches me about i'll call it the gesture of god um is the specificity of it right like, he knows our need down to that and so now when my wife and i want to panic about you know, if I'm going to lose my job here, or we have to, we, we, we might buy a house this year. We're thinking of buying a house. Um, and I'm tempted to think, well, can we afford this? And she just says to me, I'm, I mean, he gave us paper plates. Hmm. Like if he bothered with hmm. that, what, why should I worry? Why should the shadows fall? His eyes on the sparrow, you know? That's a great point about the sparrow and, 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 and that line from the Beatitudes, but blessed are the poor in spirit. Right. And, 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 yeah. and the, the, the dependency, you know, um, uh, that we have for God. And what it really is, is that 
there's always a dependency, just so often we can sort of blind ourselves to the need, right? Yeah, exactly. So we, right. Yeah. In some ways, poverty or other kinds of challenge, whatever the challenge may be, you know, sure. Um, sure. Um, material, physical, spiritual, emotional, whatever it may be, we, that dependency allows us to become sharper in perception, right? And, yeah, and, and allows us right. to recognize both uh, what can what what one can expect in one's environment, yeah. and also what kind of comes really in a way that seems really does touched or blessed by God or given by God because deeply unexpected, unanticipated. It's a great it's a great principle. Yeah. Um, okay. So first reason singing hymns, right? Second reason here these yeah. going to, to place to remember these holy sites and these sites help us to remember yeah. God, right? That's great. Your third yeah. reason. Um, for church going, maybe my favorite one, and I'll quote you here, you say, I go to church because I am weak, and in parenthesis, and the church needs weaklings. Okay, now I, 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 that's a really great qualification, right? So most Christians I know openly acknowledge their weakness and their reliance on Christ, right? They openly sure. acknowledge that. That's something I feel myself. Um, now in my religious community, uh, we often cite a passage of scripture about God helping weak things become strong. And I've seen that happen mm -hmm. in my own life over and over. But your thought in the section takes weakness a further step and asserts the church needs weak things, even weaklings. It's, mm -hmm. it's a really ingenious insight. Can you explain that rationale to us? Yeah, um, I, I suppose, uh, I, live, I don't know if I attend a particularly broken church or if they're all sort of this way. Um, part of it's being a church plant, part of it is very urban. Uh, where we go, it's a, a downtown kind of congregation. But I have seen more people with their face in their hands uh, at, at this little church that we're attending now, um, Harbor Anglican, than I've ever in my life seen. And I was thinking, why Why would that be? Like, either we just attract a lot of broken types that we don't know what else to do with their lives. Like, well, maybe they just come here. But I think part of it, it's more than that. Part of it is the kind of permission to behave that way and to feel that way in this space. Um, and I think that comes from there being, having examples of people being weak in public, um, which, you know, I've been to churches with a thousand members and the pastor's got cool shoes and, you know, like, <laughs> talk about how to structure your 401k to, to leave a legacy for your family. And that's, that's important. <laughs> I mean, but it's not weakness. You know, it, they're aspirational. Right. Do this, and someday you'll have a car like mine, or whatever. A smoking hot wife. I mean, I've literally heard pastors say that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it's the complete opposite of the kind of the kind of place that I'm at now, where it doesn't even matter what the situation is. I, sometimes there'll be a woman in our church just in the pew, sort of red-eyed or crying, and I don't know why. And my wife just goes back and holds her hand and they both start weeping together. And she hasn't even heard the subject yet. I don't even know what it is. But they will both just sit there and, and you know, bubble and dispel and break right there in the church. And it was weird the first few times. And now I think that's the place for that. Because where else is? You can't do that in a coffee shop and you can't do it at your job. And, You'll freak right. out your kids if you did it at home too much. That's right. Yeah, you know? no, that's right. That's right. It's a great point. You know, and up where I live in my congregation, um, I, for a while, so it's a, it's a, my church is a mostly lay ministry. Um, <laughs> the the, the, the full-time church leaders are, are there. They're the ones that direct the church for the entire uh, globe. But the, but most of it in congregations, local congregations, it's, it's a lay ministry. And for a while I had a calling that uh, took me to several congregations in my kind of corner of the city. 
And yeah. um, a couple of these um, were congregations where um, they were in parts of town where um, poverty was high and, and, and people were in homes mm-hmm. where if they couldn't make the rent payment, the next place was the street. There was there was not housing that was yeah. uh, less expensive uh, than that in the city. And, and, um, and, and every congregation has people who feel weakness and and who go to yeah. some level confess that weakness but it, but in that place people would talk more openly about their weakness and their dependence on God and God's yeah. blessing and what they would feel from it and I found myself looking for reasons to go the hair to that congregation more yeah, frequently because yeah. because I found myself replenished by it I thought this is I, I, yeah. I, I would I would learn there week after week what faith meant in a day-to-day yeah. Uh, way uh, that really, to me, was very powerful. Which I love. That's that's exactly right. It's a it's a ministry of the weak to the strong. Is how it that's right. To me. Yeah, exactly um, right. And, and you felt that yourself. Absolutely deeply. I love that story you tell about your wife. Um, you know where where she stands one Sunday in your, in your congregation mm-hmm. reads aloud the assigned passage, Revelation twenty one one through four. Right. This is the passage where God promises to wipe away all tears from uh, our eyes. Yeah. And you mentioned that at the moment um, that she stands to read it. Um, there's kind of a sublime irony. It's about God will wipe away all tears, and she dissolves <laughs> into tears and in reading about that that line, right? Yeah. And and you reflect yeah. beautifully in that episode. I'm going to quote you here from the article. You say that I saw then what a ministry that was. A strong person could have composed themselves, and letting herself be weak, though in front of all of us, she gave us the text in its proper gravity, gave us the promises of God afresh. Had she more poise or polish, we might have just heard a monotone, forgettable rehearsal of a Bible verse. As it was, we witnessed something like a miracle made completely of human frailty and, and God's grace toward it. It's such a great reflection. Yeah, so what you're saying is her vulnerability, her weakness, yeah. made a deeper appreciation of that passage of Scripture, that, of that promise possible. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, honestly, I can't. Um, I, I've I wrote the essay and I've read it a few times since then. And every time I think of that moment, like I start to to get emotional myself. I can't even even now. It's you know it's been a year and a half maybe since that that happened. And every single time, it just cuts me absolutely to the quick. Um, part of it is because now that I have that promise afresh, that it weighs so much. I can't believe that that's the promise. You know, the, he will wipe away every tear. Do you know how many? <laughs> and what shape and how often they come for some of us, you know, and for what reasons, for what satanic reasons or health reasons. or Do you know what I mean? Like there's, there's a million reasons people weep, whether they're actually doing that or whether it just feels that way. And every single one of them is going to be gone someday. It's absurd, you know, to, to think that way. But... But she just said it like it was going to happen, that that day was coming, you know, and seeing her do that, partly because she's my wife, right, and seeing that that kind of utter nakedness in front of the, the entire congregation, combined with the weight of that real promise, just it's too much for my sensorium to to compete with it's like oh and i'm done i'm i'm yeah. i'm on my back now oh it's so beautiful it's wonderful i love how you how you describe it and it's i, I can imagine having been there i've seen things like yeah. that in my own congregations and, mm-hmm. and it always it's always so powerful it's so so compelling yeah. 
Here's a question I have for you. In your experience, does the, does the, does the experience of church going cultivate that kind of weakness, that kind of gift, or does it just give us mm. a venue for the expression of that kind of, uh, that kind of gift? Yeah. I mean, it certainly gives us the venue, as I was kind of intimating earlier, because I don't know where else that's acceptable. But I think it also cultivates it. And if only because you have kind of examples thereof. I mean, when do you, you know, if I'm, I'm walking down the street and I see someone through their front window with their face in their hands, I just keep walking. Maybe I say a prayer sort of to myself, you know what I mean? Um, if I see someone at the coffee shop, I will cross the road to avoid them who looks like they're in distress. That's just how I am. I probably shouldn't be, but that's, that's the truth. If I see someone in church doing the exact same thing, could be the same person, right? If I see them in church crying, I go and I put my arm around them. Right. And I start praying to God for them, with them. Tell me a story or don't. I don't care. I'm here for you. If you do that enough times, right, or even you see other people do that, you start thinking, all this exterior that I've been building up, all this this strength and reserve may not be serving me. Right. You know? Yep. That's a great At least point. Like here. It's, it's inappropriate here because yep. it's a lie. If you're in church, it's like, if you're strong this week, well, we'll get you next week. You know, like what's something must be happening in your heart, in your life. This side of paradise, you know, it's things are going, going wrong. And if it looks like they're not, um, it seems like you just don't trust this place, maybe. It's a great point, uh, Misha. It's, it, uh, uh, the church does things to bring people together in ways that uh, in everyday yeah. life, uh, we're kind of naturally divided from each other you know, because if there's an inbuilt suspicion that we have toward one another, an inbuilt sense of property and propriety right. about what's sure. yours and what's mine and what's you, what's mine to share with yours and what's not. And, you know, yeah, and in exactly. church, a lot of those boundaries got just erased or crossed or, you know, and you yeah. realize there, I mean, I'm brought more fully into my own recognition of their, of their artificiality uh, in that yeah, kind of, and, right. and, and you realize what it means to be uh, children of God in the same place with the many yeah. the same hopes and the same needs uh, and, and, and what God expects of us to do vis-a-vis -vis caring for each other. Uh, and it's, yeah. it, it just changes the, the, the boundaries of everything. It's been, yeah, that's the upside down kingdom, right? Where, that's right. Where the weak are strong and the strong are weak. And it's like, here the rules are different. That's right. <laughs> Which is why it seems like the realest place uh, in my life now because those rules seem accurate to, to the human condition and what we actually go through. Absolutely. Let me leave you with one more question um, about this. This is a great conversation, Misha. I love your piece, and I want to encourage our listeners to go find it in Fair Forward. Um, it's it's online. It's free. No paywall. At least none for me. <laughs> so I'm assuming it's right, right, right. No, you know uh, it's open it, to all. Yeah, it's a gift. Yeah, it is a gift. It, very much a gift. Um, you mentioned uh, toward the end of the article that you hear many Christians comment these days that they love Jesus but not the church. Mm -hmm. Um, what do you think it would begin for these same Christians to begin saying they love both or that they love Jesus and find a vital expression of that love in the church? And if there were, if there were one thing you were to recommend to churches or to churchgoers or to those who presently do not attend church, uh, what would it be? Mm. In my tradition, the, the church is sometimes referred to as the bride of Christ. 
it took me a long time of hearing that to have it mean anything, but it means something now. And, you know, if you live a certain number of years on this earth, <laughs> you'll, you'll inevitably have friendships, uh, neighbors, family members, who knows, where maybe you don't like the wife so much. Or maybe you don't like, you know what I mean? You have a best friend and you marry someone who doesn't like you. Yeah. And suddenly you're not best friends anymore. Right. Like that happens. It just, you think you're going to, you're going to be boys forever. And then, oh, but you married her. Oh, I don't see this thing lasting very long. <laughs> right? It just, that's how it happens. Whole families are split apart. Communities, churches pick up games of basketball over and over again this happened and i just think we need to keep that in mind like because it happens for good reason people are protective of their brides they want to hear them praised they want to hear them supported right showered with gifts and come you can't say too many nice things about my wife like that's a true thing for me i will never be like nah that's not true that's that's enough of that like no 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 take i'll take it all because i'm of the same opinion and i think there might be something like that to this this biblical metaphor um, that the church is the bride of Christ. You you really oughtn't to love one of them and and despise or think ill of the other. And it just may be that 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 particular groom is, as all grooms are, charmed by by the time and attention you pay to to his bride. It's lovely. It's a great note on which to conclude. Misha, this is this has been a great conversation. Uh, this is you know, you're, you're you're a very uh, colorful, engaging, thoughtful presence. Uh, really grateful for that and for the good work you do. Uh, thank you for your Thanks time, for, for your me. wisdom. Yeah, it's been a treat. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Faith and Imagination podcast. This podcast is sponsored by the Faith and Imagination Institute, the BYU Humanities Center, and the College of Humanities at Brigham Young University is produced and edited by Sophia Snyder. The music for this podcast is composed by Ethan Wickman and is performed by Nicholas Phillips on Albany Records. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on your podcast platform. And if you're interested in other episodes, check out our website at humanitycenter.byu.edu. Thanks again for listening.